The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. First of all, thank you very much for, for having me. You know, I had a terrific experience as a, a public intellectual fellow um, with the National Committee, and so it's, it's especially fun for me to be able to, to be here this afternoon um, to do this, uh, this talk. And it, this is, it's a subject that um, we've all read a, a fair amount probably about in the news or at least seen a, a catchy headline, um, but that I think there hasn't been a lot of, uh, a lot of actual data on. And so, um, you know, most of you in, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013 probably saw a headline somewhere that looks a little bit like this, that China was spending more money on internal security than it was on external defense. Um, Here's another uh, headline from a similar news outlet. I could probably put up 12 or 15 of these screenshots without a lot of, a lot of difficulty. This got a lot of media attention. Um, and I was really interested in what was going on with these numbers, right? This, the, generally, the implication was, wow, this means China's spending a lot. And um, the way that a lot of academics interpreted that, if you go and you look at the, the academic literature, um, was that China's coercive capacity was really strong, that China was really, really capable of um, policing. That's how, that, how people sort of interpreted that number. And you can see where journalists um, and the, the folks who, who were writing these stories, you can see where they got that. If you just graph the total amount of domestic security spending as it's released in official Chinese yearbooks uh, or the, the reports to the National People's Congress every year, um, you know, this is what the chart looks like. And you see basically an exponential rise in domestic security spending um, from 92 to 2012. And I should note, you know, the, the graphs that you'll see here do stop in 2012. I think that's actually a really um, nice end point to the data for a couple of reasons that I'll come to at the end, because I think it actually helps a, us understand how the leadership that came in in, uh, in 2012 um, in that transition, what they were seeing in terms of domestic security in China, and I think it actually helps us explain what we've seen in the past four and a half or, or five years um, in terms of, of um, the CCP's behavior on, on domestic security issues. Right? So this, number, this looks like a really dramatic rise. Here's the, the potential issue with that, um, and there are, there are three sort of big um, interpretive problems with, with just looking at that one graph and drawing your conclusions from that. The first is that these numbers get taken out of context. There's no way to compare them to know if this is normal um, compared to other countries, compared to China's own history. There's no way to really interpret what's going on here. Um, in military analysis, there are these volumes that are about this thick that give you the breakdown on military spending. There's one from CIPRI um, in Stockholm. There's one uh, this is the military balance that comes out of London every year, really detailed uh, military budget data. And that just doesn't exist for, for the domestic security budget. So it makes it really hard to figure out if what China is doing is normal or not. But the headlines portray it as really extraordinary and exceptional. Um, the other thing is that neither the military analysis on China's defense spending nor these stories on the domestic security budget are consistent about what is domestic spending versus external defense spending. And this matters for two reasons. So uh, the top photo is of the People's Armed Police. And a lot of the debate about whether China is accurately reporting its military spending um, 
hinges on or rests uh, at least half of the, the discrepancy in, in estimates of Chinese defense spending um, comes from whether or not you include the People's Armed Police. And typically the people who say China is under-reporting its defense spending think that the People's Armed Police should count. Chinese statistical yearbooks treat the People's Armed Police as domestic. Um, and many of you in this room probably know that the People's Armed Police evolved in part as a force to handle domestic contingencies and to free the PLA to deal with external defense. Um, but, but a lot of the time it gets treated as an external defense force. Um, on the other hand, uh, you all probably have seen pictures of ships like this in the news recently. Um, these are some of the law enforcement vessels uh, that are responsible for or involved in some of the disputes that you may have heard about in places like the South China Sea or the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Um, anybody know budgetarily where these ships show up in China's uh, budget process? Maritime enforcement? Sort of. They're under the State Oceanic Administration, which doesn't show up in the domestic security budget and doesn't show up in the external defense budget. I've never seen any sort of line item from the, the Ministry of Fisheries that gets counted in either the defense or the domestic security budget. This means that we're, you know, when we do these analyses, like the numbers that we're attaching significance to don't count the actors that have been arguably some of the most significant foreign policy players in China in the last five to 10 years. So this just doesn't make a lot of sense. The third problem with the way that so these that's numbers- that's under the Ministry of Fisheries? Uh, the state, no, sorry. There's, so there's a separate law enforcement force in the period prior to 2012 that's also involved in these disputes that is under the Ministry of Fisheries, this in is, addition to the State Oceanic Administration. But this is a Correct. Freestand. Yeah, and it also does not show up in either budget unless you actively import that, that data, um, which typically is not the way the numbers are aggregated. And the other issue is that, you know, a lot of this spending um, you know, when you read this number about China spends more on domestic security than external defense, the implication here is that China's spending all of that money on political policing. Right? That this is, you know, this spending is being directed at uh, efforts to deal with or mitigate political opposition to the CCP. If you look at the reporting, it often talks about pro the, the rise in protest, sort of what the leadership is worried about in Xinjiang or Tibet. Um, the implication is that, that this spending, there's never any indication that it deals with anything other than political opposition. And if you actually look, and I'll show you the numbers so you can see them in just a minute, if you actually look at what this budget covers, it covers the entire uh, political legal system which includes the courts, the sort of ordinary police officers, uh, the prosecutorial system. It includes elements of China's political system that would still require personnel and budgetary support if the PRC became a sort of quintessential liberal democracy tomorrow. So the, the budget, you know, if we want to think about the effectiveness of this spending, we have to think about the fact that it's dealing both with ordinary law enforcement and with political policing. So the paper basically makes the argument that rather than just looking at that total exponential graph, um, what we should look at is, 
you know, what China spends the money on, but we should do it in context. We should think about how does this compare to other countries and uh, sort of over time. Um, you know, the, and that we should also look at what that money is actually getting spent on and what it's being spent against. In other words, what are the challenges that that spending is having to address um, or is being deployed to address? So that's what I, that's, uh, those are the three things I'm going to walk through in the next, you know, 15 or so minutes before Steve cuts me off. No. <laughs> so this is that, no, th this is that graph again about what China spends total. You just take the aggregate figure that gets released annually, put it in a, a spreadsheet, um, and, and that's what you get. This also would suggest, most of us read these numbers and think, okay, this is increasingly important to China. <coughs> But it turns out that if you look at the percent of the total expenditure or total amount budgeted, um, China's domestic security spending is not consuming an increasing percentage of, of resources. The country is not taking money away from anything else to pay for domestic security, according to the budget figures. In fact, if you graphed the entire budget in almost any category, it would look like that. The exponential rise for um, spending on social services would actually be a little steeper because uh, social services, broadly defined, are consuming an increasing percentage of China's budget. And that's just not necessarily what you would assume from this sort of single category focus on the rise in domestic security. And if it was defense spending, um, how would the graph look? If, uh, it if would that graph was overlaid on defense, would it look the same? It would also look sort of similarly exponential. Um, so, you know, and, and notice here also, in some ways, I exaggerated the variation. This graph only goes from 0% to about 8% of the budget. Um, so, you know, you're talking about between 5 and 7% of the total budget of the, the PRC. And you can see that actually from about 2007, 2008 to 2012, precisely the period when the media was reporting these dramatic double-digit increases, that the percentage of total Chinese spending on domestic security was actually going down as a percentage of the budget. Um, again, this just isn't what you would assume from these super dramatic headlines. So here's, here's what China, um, category-wise, what it spends on. And the million dollar question is, do you have a way to separate political policing from law enforcement? And the answer is no. Um, not the way these budget uh, statistics are categorized. Um, you could try to do it on a local level. I've seen some analyses of a single police station's budget, but there's a lot of internal variation in China, and it's not clear that, that any one police station's budget would be representative. Um, overall, what we know is, um, so this graph takes out the Ministry of Public Security, uh, which is about 60% of that spending in every year from 92 to 2012. Once you take that out, you can actually see a little more what, um, what the money is being spent on and how some of it's changed over time. So you can see that um, the amount spent on courts has risen slightly. The amount spent on the People's Armed Police has also risen. Um, but the amount spent on labor and prison, um, I'm sorry, prison and labor reform has actually declined. And this is actually before the abolishment of, of the system, um, which occurred after the, the break point. These data only go to two, 2009. She Sure, sorry. Maybe in the right in the front. Uh, Steve, Steve, I'm going to come over so by you. So this I, line I here is um, is prison and labor reform. Here goes down to the middle there. 
Um, the triangle line is uh, the amount spent on courts. Yeah. The squares are the prosecutorial system. Um, this is the Ministry of Justice, national security, uh, and then people's armed police. Other is this, uh, toward the end you start getting these smaller miscellaneous categories like protection of state secrets and a few other things. Um, so what's, national what's, security. What's national security? So that includes the state security budget. So that's Ministry um, of State Security. And yes, although Ministry of State Security also shows up other places in the budget. This is sort of a this is explained to be the, the fraction of that that's devoted to domestic questions. And the Ministry of Public Security, if it were on there, would be a constant? It would be relatively constant. At a much higher level. Way, yeah, way, way up right. there. So this maxes out at 15%. Um, everything other than the Ministry of Public Security is below 15% of the budget. The Ministry of Public Security is total about 60%. Between 58% uh, in some years to just over 60% in, in the highest years. Well, the, the, the one thing that jumps out is the Wuji, the, 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 the People's Armed Police, mm -hmm. just going up astronomically. Yeah, and that's probably it's, the it's quintuple from yeah from sort of about one percent to about five percent. Yeah, um, yeah. The People's Armed Police has expanded staffing and and the budget. Um, probably also some equipment inlay there, um, but yes, mm. yeah. So here's the 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 question. Um, do we want to keep the lights off or on? Oh. Off. Okay. Um, what I wanted to do was think about, you know, if you put this in comparative perspective, what, you know, what would you find? So I picked two countries that were, you know, a liberal democracy and if you're thinking about Russia, a sort of semi-democracy semi in the period that we're, we're talking about here. Um, I give you the, um, I, I, you know, the, the left-hand column is the defense spending, official defense budget. This is the figure for, um, for 2013. Um, it's a, I checked it over a, a whole range of about 10 years, and the numbers are, are relatively constant. Um, a, what you find here, uh, the, the, the overall conclusions are, are very similar. Um, you know, you can see here, yes, China has spent more on uh, internal security, that second column, than it did on external defense by about, about $4 billion that year. Um, the United States spent about $526 billion on defense spending, but it spent about $155 billion on the same categories, if you counted those as, an, as one internal security budget, which in a federal democratic system is not how we do those, those, that budgeting. So it's adding up um, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, portions of the Justice Department that deal with national and domestic security, it adds up state and local police department spending. Um, so, and it's actually it's actually a very complicated comparison. I can get into a little more detail on on how I constructed that estimate. Um, but if anything, this is an underestimate of American spending. Um, and then just just sort of because uh, I thought, okay, well, what you're trying to do with this spending is to control people and territory. Um, so let's see how this this averages out per capita. Um, and you can see the United States spends a lot more per capita, especially than China. Um, Russia actually spends a fair amount per capita, even though it, its um, total spending is a little bit lower. Yes? The spending is not adjusted for purchasing power parity, is it? It's not. Um, somewhat misleading in terms of showing that gap. So 
True. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll come to that. Here's what I did to try to address that question, right? That's, so that's a great question. The reason that's important is that it's possible that it's just way, way, way more expensive to purchase a one police officer um, in the United States than in China, right? That's, that's the idea. Um, so the question is, is, that, is, is China actually spending, basically spending less and getting more? In other words, is it spending more efficient, translating into policing power on the ground? So what I did was take um, the global estimates that we have, and I'm sorry, there's, uh, there's no good way to put this, this graph up, um, and give you a sense of sort of like what, um, okay, what guys, the global variation it. is. <laughs> it's okay, it's not actually that important. This is um, police, uh, police per capita. Um, so, and what you can see, so it's, it's, I'm sorry, the number of police per 100,000 residents. And these are sort of all the, the countries that we have in one particular data set. Um, you can see, uh, you know, the, the highest is, um, is right around 1,000. Um, here are the two estimates we have for China. So less than, um, less than uh, 200 per uh, 100,000 people. So what this suggests is that um, China's not actually, there may be some effect from purchasing power parity, and at, at some point I'll probably redo the numbers and try to account for, for that. Um, but, um, but what this suggests overall is that China's not spending less and getting more. It's, so it's, it's, not, you know, it's not sort of just cheaper to purchase a, a police officer um, or the equivalent amount of, of sort of police power in China. China's actually getting less police power. It's spending less and getting less as a result. Um, that's, you know, that's, I think, one of, one of the conclusions that, that you can reach from this, this data. The other thing um, that I think you can see if you look at what China actually spends, um, spends money on um, is to look at geographically where uh, the money is being spent. And that's important because what this graph shows is local spending as a percentage of domestic security spending. What you see is that there's been a pretty steady rise from a little under 70% uh, to almost 85% of the spending is now done by provincial and local governments. It's not done at the central government level. So that means that provincial and local governments are having to, to generate the money to pay for uh, the domestic security costs. And the, the bottom line here um, is that the fiscal capacity of provinces and localities to support high levels of domestic security spending is not great in exactly the provinces where you would want it to be stronger. Um, so in other words, the sort of the places that have the most trouble generating money to pay for domestic policing are the places that need it the most. Um, some of those places do get central transfers like, um, uh, like Tibet. Um, but what you can see here, so this is um, domestic security spending per capita. And you can see, um, there are two graphs, this is each province. You notice like there's a little bit of an increase for each province. There are big jumps in two of them. This is Tibet and this is Beijing. Beijing makes some sense, it's where the leadership is. If you're gonna spend more per capita the, yeah, on, you know, sort of 
uh, security that Beijing, both as a, an economic and a political center, is probably not a, a bad place to do it. What's pretty extraordinary, though, is the amount, um, the per capita security, domestic security spending jump in Tibet. Um, it goes through the roof starting around 2007, 2008. Um, those numbers really start to climb. Um, and as we know, Tibet is um, is well, not. Did, didn't we have the riot in Tibet? Yes. 2008. Yep, and that's probably what's going on in in that that graph. Um, what's interesting is that Xinjiang, which is immediately the, the box immediately to the right, doesn't show a similar increase. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time thinking about why that is, because if you look at what's happened in Xinjiang since about. 2012, which is again when this data ends, you've seen hiring of a, a, a rapid expansion of um, domestic security personnel and a lot of spending. I'll show some, some photos at the end of um, some of the recent things that are going on in, in Xinjiang. Um, but I think what explains what happened here is that for that three-year period after there was unrest in, um, uh, in Xinjiang, um, a lot of uh, the unrest was handled by people's armed police uh, deployments that were actually taken from other parts of the country. Um, so other parts of the country's uh, domestic security budget ended up supporting the people's armed police personnel who were then deployed to, to Xinjiang. So that's part of what I think is going on that explains why you don't see a jump in Xinjiang. Now if we could get the data through 2017, I would guess that you'd see an uptick in in Xinjiang as well, but the, what we know about how policing and unrest were handled suggests that probably, um, you know, other provinces picked up the the tab in the immediate term until these um, these sort of personnel expansions could get get why, made. Why, could go back for a sec. Why Shanghai? Shanghai looks like it's the third, fourth most rapid increase in. Mm -hmm. What the happened? other part of this, you know, so Guangdong, which is up at the, the top, um, also has a, a reasonable um, increase. I think part of, you know, the other um, thing, if you throw these numbers in a, in a regression and you look at, at what drives spending, wealthier provinces that can spend more tend to. Um, and so I think that's probably what's going on in both of those cases. In Beijing, so. Guangdong, well, you could say the same of Beijing. So sure. Beijing, Guangdong, yeah. and, and Shanghai. Yeah. I think that's probably... Looks like the steepest except for Tibet. Yep. Okay, so here's, you know, another um, thing that I think, you know, and I mentioned this at the beginning, that this budget, this total domestic security budget, has to address both uh, political policing and law enforcement, just sort of ordinary crime. Um, and you almost never hear discussion of this in these articles about the increase in the domestic security spending. Um, but crime has also increased pretty significantly in China. If you look at the Ministry of Public Security statistics, if you look at the legal yearbooks again every year, um, they document, uh, again, a pretty steep rise in crime, particularly from 1992, which is right here, um, over to 2008. So the, um, the data there end in 2008 um, is the, the last year that we have the, the data for. Um, and the suggestion here is just that it's a reasonable hypothesis that some of the increase in spending is having to go to address this problem and not just the rising levels of protest. Now we know protest is rising, the number of mass incidents has increased, the number of lawsuits has increased. It's not to say that there isn't more contention and potential political um, activity that the CCP is concerned about. 
The only thing I'm trying to emphasize here is it's probably not the only thing going on that the budget's trying to deal with. What yeah. are those top two? Um, the top two are fraud and theft. Wow. The bottom ones are the, the violent crime rates. Um, so those are particularly the, the ones that are particularly driving the, the increase. So it um, one last point that I wanted to raise, because um, you know a lot of a lot of you in this room, I know know China really well, and the other data point that sometimes invoked to say, look, but China does have this really strong coercive capacity. Look at all these people that Zhou Yongkong promoted um, during the time that he was in charge of this system. And so, what this graph uh, this graph is taken from. Um, some work done by um, Carl Minzner, who's also a, a um, public intellectual fellow, and uh, Yuhua Wang at Harvard, um, that looks at the percentage of provinces that have a uh, police chief on their the um, provincial leadership committee. And what you see is that from, again, 2007 um, onwards, uh, you see a, a pretty sharp increase in the political position of police chiefs. That's what that rise represents. It tells you that, that more and more police chiefs are sitting on provincial party leadership teams. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, at what Wong and Minzner, who are two of the, the people who've written about um, this apparatus uh, in, in China, you know, their interpretation is that this means um, somehow that, that, um, that the, the apparatus is getting stronger. Um, I actually don't think that's a good way to interpret these numbers. This is probably open to debate, um, and, and it may be sort of a subjective judgment, but when we look at other non-democracies, um, it's different to increase the political power and the political prestige of coercive agents um, than it is, it's a different task to sort of promote them in the party hierarchy. That doesn't actually necessarily give them more resources, tools, or ability to police society. In some cases, it can actually detract, because if you're promoting people, you're presumably probably paying them more, and you may actually be taking money away from frontline policing. Um, so promoting people can actually weaken uh, the capacity to do societal or social um, community-based policing um, and sort of ground-level public security work. Um, so just a, this is one of the, the questions that I often get. It, well, look, but aren't these guys getting promoted? Aren't they more powerful? Doesn't that make them more capable? Um, the answer is often no. Um, it may actually have the, the opposite effect. Um, and so, um, you know, our, uh, uh, you can see, you know, Mr. Mr. Joe, um, in the time that he uh, ran this system, was successful at promoting um, police and public security officials. Um, but they actually didn't remember the percentage of spending stayed flat. It's not like these promoted officials were able to sort of pull more resources their direction away from other things. Um, so, um, you know, this suggests that, that increasing their political prestige didn't actually help them much with the task of, of policing Chinese society. So this is Mr. Zhou at his, his trial. Um, what I think all of this adds up to, because I'm trying to keep my remarks under the, the time limit I was given, um, is that the idea that, that these spending increases um, may not be nearly as uh, sort of exceptional as we think. If we look at China, we look at Russia, this doesn't necessarily look like it's sort of so different um, than what um, these other countries are, are doing. And we actually should expect that if we believe that de democracies are somehow less coercive. Um, 
you know, we should expect that China's spending is exceptional. That's certainly the media portrayal. But that doesn't actually appear to be what's, what's going on here. Um, those increases buy less coercive capacity than, than um, we might have assumed. Um, the fiscal base for domestic security is weak, and it's actually stressed in precisely the areas that the CCP might feel most domestically challenged, Xinjiang, Tibet, um, and some of the, the other um, sort of both poorer, less developed, and, and um, more restive parts of the country. Um, both crime and political activity are increasing, and the system has to, that spending has to deal with both sets of challenges at once. Um, and, and that the elevation of, of police and public security officials within the CCP hierarchy doesn't necessarily help them more capably manage Chinese society. Um, so what all of this suggests to me um, is that the data, if they're read carefully, may actually show us more about the limits on Chinese coercive capacity and more about Chinese insecurity um, than sort of overwhelming strength or an incredibly capable coercive apparatus. That's just not what, what I see when I look at this. And I think this actually helps explain some of what we see. Um, I mentioned earlier that I think 2012 is in some ways a nice break point in the data because um, this is a moment of transition. And if you're China's leaders coming in and you're looking at this data, it seems to me that you might have some real reason to be worried about your capacity to control uh, China's people and, and territory. Um, and there are a lot of things that have happened that suggest that maybe that is, in fact, how China's leaders viewed what was going on prior to 2012 and what needed to be done. We saw you know, the creation of a national security commission that has been largely domestically focused to the extent that we know about its, its operations. Um, new laws regulating domestic security, whether that's cybersecurity, um, NGO management, um, and, and then a general sort of tightening of social control that journalists have described, that businesses have described, um, who are operating on the ground in, in China. Um, they also stopped releasing the domestic security budget statistics uh, every year at the National People's Congress. Um, I'm trying to track down the, the next set of yearbooks to see if uh, to see if the data is still being released in this sort of um, less easily reportable form, um, but I haven't found it yet. Um, and then we get the sort of, you know, things that you all may have seen photos of recently, the sort of security theater, particularly in, in Xinjiang. Um, so I don't know, how many of you saw this photo? Um, this was carried on, on Chinese um, uh, official state media, um, and it's a picture of a domestic security rally in Xinjiang, a law enforcement rally earlier this year. Um, that's the photo from the back looking up at that building. Um, it's pretty striking. And there were actually a whole bunch more images like this, um, clearly sort of intended to display uh, capability um, and uh, sort of to impress the viewer with what's going on here. And I think that um, you probably don't feel the need to do this unless you think maybe people had some doubts or some questions um, what's, what's the in their mind. Um, I can't remember where that is. I th um, good question. I'll look. I'll go back and look. So again, you know, when I look at all of this, both the the um, the data on China's domestic security spending and you know what we've seen since 2012, it seems to me like a reasonable interpretation. Again, like open to debate, but it seems to me a reasonable interpretation that. 
um, if you look at the budget from 2012 backwards, um, that there was actually some good reason to be concerned uh, if you were a leader sitting in Beijing or one of these areas that's, that's tasked with um, maintaining China's coercive capacity, capacity to control people and territory. Um, and that, that might actually help explain a lot of what we've seen in China in the almost five years uh, since then. So I will stop there and um, let Steve and everybody else ask a lot of questions. That's terrific. Thanks. Because we don't have the data for, you know, after the 18th Party Congress, leading up to the 19th Party Congress, is there how can we can we extrapolate in some way? Are we just left to guess? You know, we've seen changes under the leadership of Xi Jinping, and how? What do you think the budgets? How would the budgets reflect this? My guess would be that you might see some breaks in the data. You might actually see an increase percentage-wise in spending. Um, you know, the other thing that you might see is spending that's coming from other sources. So you and I talked earlier about the anti-corruption campaign. Right. My sense is that a lot of that wouldn't ever show up because these are the official state expenditures. And a lot of the anti-corruption uh, inspections and work is being done in the party. Um, right. And then the cases are handed off so, to the court. So that was my next question. The party expenditures are not included Correct. in this. And the party expenditures are totally untransparent. Correct. Yeah. So there, there is no budget that's ever. If you find one, let me know. I'd love to do this, <laughs> do this exercise with it. Um, to my knowledge, nobody had actually looked at um, this data from the yearbooks, um, which I was kind of surprised at because it, it is there by category. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is sort of a descriptive exercise of translating what's in the, the yearbooks and making a few adjustments to make sure everything's consistent. But I'd love to see um, the party data. My guess would be that it's complementary in some areas um, and sort of, you know, uh, adds on in others. Um, and I, But I don't have a good sense and probably don't want to get in the business of speculating about what that might look like. Yeah, my guess, yes, it would, my guess is given the increase of the, the Party Disciplinary Inspection Commission function, one would see an yeah, enormous increase in that expenditure. One might even, I think they're borrowing people now from the procuracy and, and other places, so we may actually see a slight, assume, it may be a secondment. It may kind of be like the National Security Council in the United States, it gets all these secundees and they never go on budget in the NSC. So maybe the Party Disciplinary Inspection Commission does the same, that they stay on the procuracy or they stay on the public the Ministry of Public Security payroll and they, and they go in that. If anybody ever has a chance in this room, please ask them for me. <laughs> I'd be really curious. The, um, what's it mean for U.S. policy? So I think this kind of interpret it's because it's not a mainstream interpretation, as you saw in the, as you portrayed in the beginning. It's not sure. what the media says, and it's not kind of what most of the people say. Yeah, I mean, so so first of all, I mean, I think this is a, an example for me of where um, academics and scholars can play a useful role in saying, hold on, there's this headline, and the headline might be accurate, right? There was nothing untrue about the statistics that were presented. Um, but taken out of context, I think um, somebody who doesn't know China well could read them and come to some misleading conclusions. Um, 
So I think that you know the, the first thing is just to help people know what not to think when they read a headline like that. Um, the other thing is that this overall you know, tightening of social control that I described has had a, an effect on U.S.-China relations. Um, you know, in, in uh, one of the, the trips that I took as part of the, the National Committee Public Intellectuals Program, we heard a lot about the NGO management law, which was then in draft form. We heard about it from businesses, from universities, from NGOs that had either foreign funding or foreign NGOs that were trying to operate effectively in China. Um, and that's, you know, concern that then comes back to uh, Washington, it comes back to San Francisco, it comes back to wherever these businesses are located um, or these NGOs or, or universities are, are operating. Um, and so, you know, it affects um, U.S.-China relations at the business level, at the sort of people-to-people, -people, the educational uh, level, um, and at the sort of cultural, NGO, uh, philanthropic level. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the... Um, that's part of the takeaway, that outside of the formal government structures, um, this may be a, a reaction that is limiting U.S.-China relations um, in one of the areas where they've been the most positive and constructive, the, the economic and the sort of educational exchange um, parts of the U.S.-China relationship. Um, and if that's, in fact, what's, what's happening, um, I think it's important to understand why that is. Um, it may or may not be something that uh, an external actor like the United States can change, um, but it'll probably, you know, be helpful to those groups to understand where it's, where it's coming from. The fiscal constraint, obviously Tibet is not a wealthy place, Xinjiang is not, <coughs> is not wealthy, and they can't pay for either the social services or the the police activity there, but the federal, go uh, the central government, the, federal mm -hmm. the central government is is willing to to make those expenditures. So, th when you say they're fiscally limited, they're really not. Um, that's true. It means that the the provinces um, are, I think, con highly constrained, um, and the central but government has a limited amount that it it spends on these transfers. Um, yes, it's going to put them in the highest priority areas, but I think that's also part of why you see some effort to increase um, the economic and the revenue base in some of these areas. There are lots of reasons why uh, the, CCP, tax base, yeah. Yeah, the CCP is interested in economic development in Tibet. Um, increasing the tax base is in order to fund policing is probably not the the only or maybe even the most important reason, but I think it's probably one of the reasons why economic development there is considered important. Hmm. Now, border, it sounds like it's a U.S. question, but border, <laughs> border control is actually within the Ministry of Public Security. Yes, is part it, of it. Is There's it, some it, part that's in the, the military budget as well. Is that a broken out expense? Yes, I'd have to look at the numbers. So, to so tell you actually exactly would know, because it, 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 it's interesting. As you know, there there are lots of interesting discussions online. None, and the Chinese denying this is the case. But there's, uh, they're now saying there are exercises being run near North, not exercise, normal exercises being run towards uh, near North Korea. I think is the mm -hmm. words. Is, 
Is that right? That's basically what's being said now. There, there was a, there was a report that there were 150,000 troops that moved up there. But that seems to have been sourced from some very questionable South Korean media reporting. Uh, well, except 150 the, number. But then it was least. denied, and then then it was said it's just normal. We just send people up there normally. But one wonders, you know if there was a tragedy in North Korea and the refugee situation uh, became extreme, you know, would they have, a, I guess they would make the funds available, people would need to go up to, you know, to the Northeast to, to work. I would expect first that a lot of that would be in the external defense budget, um, that particular military region, and second, um, that you know, if there really was a contingency, some sort of crisis in North Korea that required extra Chinese personnel for stabilization, they'd probably get pulled from other regions of the country. Um, so I'm not, again, I'm not sure if it would actually show up in these statistics and it would be years right later. away. And if it did, it'd probably be a, a lagged effect. Mm -hmm. It is, I had not focused on the fact that they have stopped re releasing this, and they've stopped releasing the the number of um, uh, protests, was it over 10 people that yes. required yeah, the, the, mass, the mass incident number? Ma that became a mass incident. Oh, it was over 100. No, no. No? Really? Oh, no, no, no. It was, I think it was 10. Very, a mass incident was, was defined as very, very small. Um, and the definitions varied, but it was never 100. It was quite, quite low. Um, but let me open the floor to, to questions. Herb. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, do you have any uh, numbers <coughs> or any feel for the number of prisoners, detainees, etc., who are affected uh, by these organizations that you've described to us? That's the first question. And the second question is, what is the relationship of these uh, organizations to Interpol and international cooperation on crimes? Um. So first question, unfortunately not. Uh, I don't have any numbers on the, the people. Um, this was strict, this project was strictly on the budget data. It would be interesting to try to get that, but I, ha I don't um, have the data and I haven't looked for it. As far as Interpol, my understanding is that um, the Ministry of Public Security works with Interpol on a lot of the sort of especially transnational um, crime issues. And so it's, you know, it's in that sense, it's, it's treated as a law enforcement agency. Um, pretty standard. Am I mistaken, or did the head of Interpol, is the head of Interpol now a Chinese? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the red sweater, yeah. I'm curious as to, what, Can you introduce? Um, what was the re reason to do this study? Mm -hmm. And really going back to Steve's question about the role of the state, to speak in terms of coercion and exclude the party, which is in every office, factory, and administrative um, agency, seems to be incomplete. Can you introduce yourself, please? I'm sorry? Introduce yourself, please. Oh, my name is Don Devine. Um, sure, it is incomplete. There are also no numbers. It's not a possible project to do. I would love to do it. It's, um, it's simply not, not possible, um, at least in a fashion that's in any way comparable or reconcilable with these numbers. 
Um, and I thought it was a valuable exercise to see what uh, you could learn from the official and the state um, statistics about what the government is doing. Um, it would then be valuable to add the party. Uh, like I said, I don't know that the party um, statistics would follow the same patterns. I actually would expect that they wouldn't. Um, and that in and of itself would tell you something very different and valuable, but I thought the project was, was worth doing um, on these, these terms. And the paper itself has a lot of places where I um, explain where I adjusted the figures to try because I, I wanted to make them either comparable across years or to account for some inconsistency. Um, so I tried to be pretty explicit and transparent with people about where uh, I had questions or where the potential weaknesses of the, the data were. I just didn't want to get into this sort of the footnote level of detail in the, the talk today. Um, in terms of what motivated the interest in the, the project, um, as uh, Steve mentioned, I um, work on uh, domestic security and on uh, non-democratic politics in East Asia. Um, the book that he mentioned is principally actually about Taiwan, South Korea, and the Philippines during the Cold War. Um, I did some initial work on China and North Korea. Um, the book was way too long and ended up being coherent when you talked about those three countries um, and telling that, the anti-communist um, non-democracies, sort of the story of how they their coercive apparatus originated and how it operated. Um, so that was the book project, but I had a lot of questions about China. I had spent years in, in um, you know, living and working in China and Taiwan, studying Chinese, doing research, and um, and I, you know, I found these numbers in when I was looking. You know, I, I read these stories. I thought there's probably something more to this. We re really, this is the only, this is the the best data we can get. This single figure that. Um, that, that suggests we don't have any more information on where this money's going. Um, and so I went and I looked in the Chinese yearbooks and there was a fairly detailed breakdown relative to what was in the news reports. And so I thought it was just useful to um, basically bring that into the, the public discussion, caveats and all. Okay, thank you. Jim. I'm James Tunkey. Uh, really fantastic research. I want to compliment you on your work and your presentation. Thanks. A little louder. I, um, I would ask if I could make a comment and then ask for your response. Okay. Uh, my uh, comment is that um, I, I don't believe that public purchasing parity is a, a good area of research really because I think of Chinese culture as very different from the United States and there's been a lot of work uh, done on the differences in coercion in, in China and the capacity of the state to coerce of just because of the structure of the culture versus of other countries. The coercive nature that really, the data that you have that's very interesting is your broad uh, slide. The reason why it's so interesting is because there's been pretty solid research on the decline of the state's capacity to prevent corruption. And the rise in fraud appears to be as an armchair criminologist uh, a fairly good indicator for uh, the breakdown of society's capacity to inhibit the, the conduct of fraud uh, over time. And so I would agree with your conclusions and ask if you have any additional comments or thoughts on what you saw during your research as it relates to that fraud number. Okay. 
Um, sure. I, I, I particularly I think one important comment about what in some ways these numbers reflect. Um, uh, I tend to avoid talking about culture because I'm never 100% sure what, what people are talking about when they use that word. Um, but what I do think you're seeing in uh, these numbers, um, which is not at all surprising, is um, you know if you think about the changes that China experienced in this period, they started earlier, but over the course of this period, and part of what you're seeing is the dissolution of some of the traditional Maoist era uh, practices and mechanisms for social control. You could call those cultural. You could call those um, Maoist. I, you know, it, it depends a little bit on. I think that's something that, that China scholars could spend a long time debating, sort of what the origins or, or um, nature of those institutions was. But you, if you look at things like household registration, the use of the hukou system, if you look at you know the the um, the, the Danwei system, the work unit, um, the role of the work unit, um, you know, all of these things are things that. Um, tied people more tightly to the CCP, um, and although the party is a lot of places, um, its ability, those sort of institutions that tied people more tightly to the party are things that the general assessment, I think, is, is probably a fair one, that those weakened considerably during the process of economic reform and opening. Um, so to me, what you see here is partly an attempt by the formal apparatus of the state to compensate for, in some ways, the, the weakness or the weakening of party mechanisms of control, at least up until 2012. We may now be seeing a, a revival of the role of the party. Um, but if you think about what's happening in the 92 to 2012 period, um, the traditional account is that the, the institutions that the party used for sort of social regulation and social management um, lost some of their regulatory power um, during this period. And so in some ways, I think this is also a story about the, the way that the state uh, is compensating for that process um, during this period of economic reform and growth. That's probably not a direct answer, but since it was a comment rather than a question, I'm going to take the liberty to answer it somewhat, um, what's that word? Perpendicularly, yes. Thank you, Jan. Let's see. We've got here, then we got Chris, and then we got in the back. Go ahead. Uh, I do my private research on China, uh, but uh, this is the first time I'm hearing a, a lecture on this topic. Mm -hmm. uh, there seem to be many other types of activities which are which do not uh, commonly occur in in countries outside China. Uh, such as uh, uh, the suppression of the Falun Gong movement and the forceful removal of uh, organs of Falun Gong prisoners. Uh, I wonder if uh, that kind of cost reports, uh, would uh, come under your, uh, you know, within your data, and uh, has there been anybody who has tried to compute that? And also, reportedly, Ma Yun has said uh, very proudly. Uh, to the public that his company is able to provide the government uh, any data on any uh, any criminal uh, who wants to commit a crime, uh, for example, a theft or a murder or some other types of uh, 
the prime before it occurs, before that guy goes to a big shopping mall, he can get the, get the data. And whether or not there is such a, there is this uh, collaboration between commerce and the state, and uh, is there any way to compute that figure? Uh, also, censorship, which is uh, very great, the pe deleting, deleting people's, uh, uh, people's uh, transfer of articles on WeChat. Uh, who is doing that? Uh, does that appear anywhere in the budget? Also, I have heard repeatedly, and Jiang Zemin, and also Hu Jintao, and even under the current government, that uh, uh, the armed police have been used by the government to track down the Xinjiang Uyghur uh, young people who murder people left and right in different provinces uh, and major cities uh, in the interior part of China. And then when they found where they were in different villages, they, the armed police would be sent there uh, at night and would surround the villages and would kill everybody and just bury them. And I've heard that rumors many times. Okay, you've got, got a lot of questions there. That's, a, that, that, that's <laughs> enough. We've, got, we've heard enough of these questions. Uh, we've, we've heard enough questions. It's, you've asked a lot. Are there any of these you want to respond to? Sure. Um, uh, you know, most of those don't, uh, the cost you're talking about is a societal or a human cost um, rather than a sort of budgetary cost that would show up in an official yearbook. So. Um, I think that that's probably the clearest answer I can give to a couple of your different questions about um, cost. Uh, the, the only other thing probably that's useful to say, two, two short comments. Um, one, clearly sort of the issue of policing and coercion in China could be a, a book and this would be maybe a chapter. Um, that might be something that I work on in the future. The, this paper, um, you know, you have a limited amount that you can do with any given uh, given paper, and so to to actually try to be focused and rigorous on the the budget, you know, that's what this particular paper focused on. Which is not to suggest that a lot of questions about security policy and behavior are not valuable. It's just not the sort of the particular goal of um, the 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 project, which is to interrogate this particular set of data and to find out what we can learn. Um, the last thing I'll say is there's a lot that's been written on censorship, which is partly done by the Ministry of Public Security, um, partly done by some other actors, but also, you know, done uh, as a matter of sort of corporate policy um, by a lot of, uh, of the companies that, that operate and own social media platforms. Um, so the work that I would suggest reading that has a, a fairly detailed chart on how the censorship process works um, is uh, the article in Science Magazine. It's about 10 pages long by Gary King, Margaret Pan, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jen Pan and Margaret Roberts. Um, that has a, a fairly, I think, um, interesting depiction of how the censorship process works and the different actors that are that are involved. Um, Again, that you know that wasn't the the focus of this paper, but there's some great work on it um, that I would strongly suggest to anybody who wants to know more about that process. Chris, uh, thank you very much. I'm Chris Mark at Abco Worldwide. Um, when when I read the the um, uh, people who are writing in general about the last uh, few years and evaluating Xi Jinping, there are some people who would argue that uh, he represents a sharp break with the preceding ten years. 
and other people who would argue that no, it roots all lie in party decisions that were in directions that were set earlier under Hu Jintao or even under John Zeman, and there is a strong continuity. And I wonder if you have an opinion on that question, and if uh, if you would uh, uh, give us your view of how one would decide whether there has been a sharp break in in, uh, in policy, or whether there is a Um, it's a great question, and I think a difficult one to answer, especially concisely. Um, I think one indicator I would look at, since I've spent a lot of time buried in these budget statistics, is if these patterns are very different, or if you were able to get party data and there was a, a discontinuity in either the government, um, the, the state spending patterns, or the government spending. I think that would tell you a lot about, about actual policy and implementation. Um, my sense is that there are some things that are different, uh, particularly about the role and the use of the party, um, that are, if not a reversal, um, certainly maybe a different emphasis or a different direction. But uh, there are probably other elements of uh, that are that are a little more continuous. Um, certainly, the sort of um, some of the, the chief internal security concerns that the Chinese leadership has have not, um, they're not necessarily dramatically different. They, there may be, um, they may take a slightly different form, but I don't see that the sort of chief concerns, particularly thinking about Tibet, Xinjiang, management of some of these, these more contested areas, um, you know, I, I don't see that there's been a sort of radical break. In some ways, what there's been is a deepening of um, policies that were in the works by 2008-2009. Um, I visited both the Tibetan Autonomous Region, uh, Qinghai, and Xinjiang over the course of 2008-2009, um, and I think you could see some of um, what we read a lot about today, um, the genesis of that in that period, which was three years before Xi Jinping was in the, the role he's in now. In the back there. Uh, I'm Tim Wen. I just have a couple questions going kind of more granularly into what's in the numbers and what might not be. Uh, just first question is, would paid informants, you think they would be included, be paid <laughs> under the lines of the budget you were talking about? Um, similarly, I think you might have answered or referred to it, there's been a lot of articles about uh, the amount of resources being brought in to surveil the internet. My guess is that those people who are being paid are not being paid out of the police budget. They're being paid out of a different ministry. And then just a, a more of a comment that you, I don't know if you have any insight onto. I'm thinking in particular of a journalist, John Garnett, from Australia, mm -hmm. uh, who for years, especially around all the Boshalai scandal, he was looking into the matter of land, you know, the big issue about land seizures, et cetera, et cetera. And he said that a lot of that, that, his issue was, I guess, put in academic terms, that a lot of the coercion that's going on now between, he was saying the party and the people, was not so much political coercion. There was more and more economic coercion going on. Essentially what he was saying is that his, his thesis was the party in collaboration with organized crime was doing much of these land seizures, and he said the value of it actually was far exceeding in urban areas. Most of the attention was always got in rural areas, farmers. But he said more of it was going on. He was especially focused on 
trying to investigate those links in Chongqing, but I think he also was looking at Wuhan too. So I don't know if you have uh, any comment, any insights into that, or anybody who's been talking about it. You know, I think um, I, I I think his work is fascinating. He's done a lot and knows a lot about it. I'm not sure I have a lot to add specifically on on that issue. Um, with respect to the two questions you raised about, you know, is this being funded purely through the the state budget, um, or are there other sources? I think the answer is probably both in both cases, but but with different um, different different forms. So if you if you think about censorship. Um, some of it is done by the Ministry of Public Security. There's also been, uh, and again, I, I would commend the article, in the Science um, Magazine article by King Pan and Roberts because it goes through this very clearly, the sort of corporate self-policing and the way that the party has effectively shifted the cost of censorship into basically corporate due diligence and compliance. Um, it's considered sort of a part of business operations that, that businesses absorb some of that, that cost to stay in compliance with Chinese law. Um, so um, in terms of paid informants, I, I would assume that some of them are uh, being paid through the Ministry of Public Security. I've heard about um, some. There are probably also other ministries or other um, party organs that, that might do some of that. Um, I, you know. Uh, I don't have a lot of information, granular information on how that's organized. Um, but I will say, you know, in the research that I did on, on Taiwan, um, you know, at one point the Ministry of Justice's investigative bureau, which did a lot of domestic surveillance work, um, calculated the number of informants that it had. Um, but it was also very clear that they were not the only ministry who was employing those informants. Um, how many of them are paid versus unpaid uh, and therefore on budget is um, probably not a question we're going to get a good answer to. And I would guess that the answer is probably different in Shanghai than it is in some a, a small village 300 miles from Shanghai. And the answer in Shanghai or in an eastern province is probably very different than the answer in Qinghai or Tibet. Um, so even if you got sort of granular local police station data, I think you'd have to get it in a bunch of different parts of the country before you had a sense for what the actual variation at the local level, you know, where the, the disaggregation of one police station's local budget. Um, even if you got great data on one place, I wouldn't assume that it would travel to another part of China very well. Sheena's book is available outside for those of you who want it, Dictators and Their Secret Police. And thank you so much for coming here Thanks and shedding light on me. something.